In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. God willing, today we're going to cover Second uh, Timothy chapter 2. Last week we um, studied the first chapter. Does anyone remember what we studied last week? What was the theme of the first chapter of Saint Second Timothy? Oh yeah. So so Second Timothy is we call it what type of epistle? Pastoral epistle, why? Okay, but pastoral is more it means that it's like a personal letter from Saint Paul to Saint Timothy, right? So it's like it's a letter showing the pastoral care from Saint Paul to Saint Timothy. Okay? So so the th- one of the major themes that we studied in the first chapter was St. Paul speaking to St. Timothy about how he's going to experience persecution um, for the sake of the word, right? So he, as he is performing his role as bishop and preaching and doing all the things, um, that, that there will be pushback, there will be, there will be persecution, there will be hardship, um, and to tell him to remain strong and, and, and faithful in the midst of, of all of that. So that was one of the, the major themes um, and what we read last time. Um, so in chapter 2, it says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you heard from me among many witnesses, commit, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So the role of St. Timothy was not just himself to preach, but to do what? To ordain. Right to ordain others who would be able to further the ministry, and this is what we see: is the bishop does not do his role or his ministry by himself. The bishop appoints others to help him in the service. Right, and so this is why, um, this is why in the church we have a hierarchy, like a structure. Right, the bishop is is uh, you know the the leader, and then under him you have the priests and the deacons, and and then all of the people. So there, this way, there is a, a way that. Um, we can serve the most efficient way and, and, and maximize the people who are served. So it's not all falling on the directly the shoulders of the bishop, even though ultimately the bishop is the one um, responsible. And he says the qualifications of these people who should be selected um, should be faithful men. And what is faithful men? Well, in First Timothy, he went into a lot more detail about what are the characteristics of a bishop, what are the characteristics of a deacon. So the people that who he would select would be uh, faithful and qualified for the service. Also, he says, what is it the things that they should be able to teach? They should say, it says, and the things you have heard from me, okay, the things you have heard from me among many witnesses. Okay, so what are what is the significance of this? The things you have heard from me among many witnesses. Um, apostolic teachings. So apostolic teachings, right? Holy tradition. We see the teachings of Saint Paul that are not necessarily recorded in any of the epistles, right? Because he's saying the things you have heard from me, not just the things that I have written down. So, so the idea that the only true Christian doctrine comes from um, the, the, the written word that's been canonized to be the Bible, um, that's not true. There's other teachings that maybe were given by St. Paul or by Christ um, and the other apostles that were extra biblical outside of the Bible, but are just as valid and true and necessary. And so here he's saying these teachings that you have heard from me um, that you will teach. Mm-hmm. And then what is the significance of him saying among many witnesses? Yeah, so obviously what, what St. Paul teaches has to match what all the apostles teach. So what the St. Paul is teaching is not unique to him. Good. What else? That the fact that there's witnesses means that what you're saying isn't going to be made up. Like it's, it's, you know, it's not just whatever you're teaching people, there's other people to corroborate that I have taught you this. Good, because obviously it's, it's was much more difficult at the time 
to um, to verify that a person um, actually said what it is that is claimed that they said. Although nowadays I would say we're back again to where you still can't tell who says anything. But but back then, of course, there was no way to, to say someone could come and say, oh, St. Paul said such and such. Right. Well, how is it that you're going to know that? How is it you're going to verify that it's true or not? Right. So so when w what are the teachings that he wants St. Timothy to focus on? The teachings that that many people can verify that St. Paul is actually taught. Right. That he actually taught them. And then those people who are the faithful men, um, their their role here will be able to teach also. Right. So they, they also should be able to teach, because if you have someone who is like very good and very spiritual person um, and, and knows the word of God very well, but they don't have the ability to teach, then the people, again, are not going to be edified. Right. So being able to teach is important. And the idea that the doctrine that is being taught is the same doctrine that was passed on. And we spoke about this before, that all we're doing is taking whatever it is that has been taught before and we're passing it on to the next generation because these are the words of life. You know, some people have this attitude that it's like we're constantly having to create new things, have new interpretations for things, rehash things that had been accepted for a long time and be constantly churning, 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 trying to like, like, you know, almost to like scratch an itch of wanting to like discover new things. Right. But this is dangerous in the church. Right. This is dangerous because because what exactly is it that we are trying to do is the word of salvation that was that was given by Christ to the apostles has not changed. It's the same word, right? Like when Christ came to earth and he taught the apostles, is there something he left out? Like, is there something that he decided, you know what, I'm not going to tell you this, but I'm going to tell it to you later on? Or is there something that they misunderstood from him and yet he did not try to correct them and he just let them remain kind of blinded to it or, or misunderstanding it? No, he, he, he taught them everything they needed to know and he made sure they understood what was true and what was not true. And then he sent them out to go and preach and to establish the church. So all the churches that were established all over the world were established according to the same word because they were all taught by St. Paul. So, so there isn't anything at the time new that would have been um, like deviating from the, the, the teachings of Christ. All the churches that were established all over the world would have the same teaching. All of the apostles would have the same teaching. And their focus was, how do we maintain this teaching and preserve it so that it would be continued to the next generation without deviation? Yes. Now, when you talk about witnesses, right? Like many people haven't, don't have a witness to the Orthodox Church, right? And so when, but when they say the church, they're assuming any kind of Christian denomination. And like, I don't know if I agree that all of them are Christian, you know? And so how do you, like, when you say, oh, we have to be witnesses to the church, well, how do you create that difference of like what? capital T, capital C churches, and the truth, capital T, and what someone else has already witnessed and experienced of a church or Christianity or what, like we have, we're like, it's almost like infighting, right? And so our witness to those who have never heard about Christ or are not part of any sort of Christian anything, right? We're fighting against ourselves almost, not ourselves, but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Does anyone like to answer, Sephora? <laughs> um, I mean, that's the role of like apologetics. And when we do comparative theology, right? Like we say, okay, there are all of these other Christians, or if we're not even going to call some of them Christians, wh whoever it is. And we say, okay, what is the basis for your belief? Okay. And we try to understand, like, why do you believe what you believe? And then we say, here's the basis of our belief right and in the end of course you can't force anybody to believe anything but we try to present um very good valid convincing reasons why we we have the faith that we have and then everybody chooses but the problem the reason we're in the mess that we're in now with all these different denominations is because from the from very early on this began to deviate right and when it began to deviate in a small way it grew and grew and grew until now it's like deviated in a very large way and I would say the explosion of Christian denominations happened at the Protestant Reformation with the ideal of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura being that I can interpret the scripture myself. 
So the moment that you can interpret the scripture on your own and you don't go back to any reference, right? Then now everyone is going to interpret it differently. And so that's when you have this explosion of different denominations, like hundreds of thousands of denominations that we have now. So, so, so that emphasizes like why that this is something that should be done and we cling to it as much as we can to avoid more of that happening in the future because that can continue to happen and you could have i mean even among orthodox churches mm -hmm. right so even among orthodox churches there have been schisms i mean of course there's the famous schism in 451 between the chalcedonian and non-chalcedonian but even after that like you'd have schisms in churches about like things like the calendar you know like some group they want to stick to the old calendar another group they want to adopt a new calendar even things that are not even really that important people will split over and and they'll begin to have different beliefs about about different things so it's important to stick to a reference and go back to the reference rather than everyone to kind of think on their own like this is what i think makes sense but how do you like bring importance to that when there's like all this other stuff happening in the world right like it's like two different lines one line is like this whole all the different types of Christianity, what's truth, what's not truth within the realm of Christianity. And then there's another line of like, well, all the regular suffering that people are dealing with, right? And so I feel like you run into it, what difference does it make, right? You know Jesus, love Jesus, get through your day, right? Get through whatever your suffering is. And how, like, do you, like that importance of, well, that's not truth versus truth may not be a high priority for the world when there's so many other crazy things but those same people at least of those who say that they're christians those same people who say they're christians if you ask them do you live according to the bible they'll say yes do you believe that the bible is inspired by god most of them will say yes um if if you if if you find something in the bible that's contra that contradicts your faith what would you do would you change your faith to to conform to the bible many people will say yes okay but but when it comes to like the actual teachings, like so for instance, let's say when it comes to like communion, for instance, is communion necessary or not, or what is it, right? If you read the Bible, the Bible is very clear what the words that Christ said about communion. So the fact that people don't live according to it is not because they um, they they have a, a a faith that has a different theology or a different Bible. It's just they're not following what it is that the Bible says. So I think the best way is to say, hey, what are the things that Jesus said are essential for life? And are we following those things, right? And if we are not following them, then what did he say would happen if we don't follow them? And hey, this is a big deal, right? It's not just, I, I like going to this church because the people are nice and, and they have good food and they welcome me when I walk in the door or stuff like that. No, what does the church teach, right? What, is, what does it actually teach? It reminds me actually of there was a person who used to attend here, um, uh, and uh, and they, they were Protestant. They were visiting, and and they were very zealous about coming to the Bible study often, and um, and 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 like they knew the Bible very well, and um, they there was a period of time where like they were going to be visiting for a time, and they were going to leave, and so on the last day when they were leaving, um, the the person asked me, like that in their church, um, it was a Protestant church that they wanted him to give uh, a talk about communion to the congregation. And he asked me, um, so what do you recommend that I say? And I told him, I don't think you're going to like what I have to say. And he's like, what? I said, well, I mean, according to John chapter 6, unless you're taking communion, then you have no life. Um, but of course, their church didn't believe that, right? Um, and, and it was a difficult conversation to have, right? But, but ultimately, whether a person accepts it or not, the Bible that you read is saying something contrary to what you believe. So to, to help people realize, hey, have you really read the whole Bible? Like, are you really considering everything? Because if they have the same Bible, like there are some that they could change the Bible, like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. They will change the Bible, okay? To, to, to be, but at least the reason that they change it is because they want it to say the same thing that they practice, right? But there are many Christians that have a Bible, the same Bible we read, but they read it so differently or they ignore parts of it, right? So so to, to bring to light the fact that it's like, hey, there's whole areas here where you're just kind of, you're just like sweeping it under the rug. You're not really, you're not really living this. And, and how do you, and why is that? You know, and I think that's the best way.
Um, you, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So again, Timothy is going to follow in the footsteps of St. Paul, and St. Paul, of, of course, follows in the footsteps of Christ. So Timothy is going to endure suffering just as his teacher did. Okay, And this is the spiritual war. And again, as we speak about discipleship, discipleship is all about understanding that whatever Christ experienced, we also experience. Right? So when Christ goes on the cross, we will go on the cross. Okay, when, when, when Christ is exalted, we also will be exalted with him. He, he is resurrected, we are also resurrected. So whether it is a time of struggle like we're in now, or whether it's a time of glory, right? we, we, we are following in the footsteps of Christ, and so he calls us to struggle um, just as he also suffered in the world. Of course, our struggle is against our nature. You know, sometimes we think about struggle as being primarily because of enemies or outside external forces whether it be people or whether it be circumstances in my life that are difficult, that uh, are like a cross that we have to carry. But for all of us, there is a constant struggle, and that is the struggle against sin, the, the struggle against the flesh, the struggle against bad habits, the struggle against wrong thoughts, right? This is the constant struggle to, 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 to struggle for purification, right? To struggle for sanctification. And of course, we are enabled to, to be sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit that we received. So this hardship that we're enduring, whether we are called to be like, in this case, St. Timothy, who's a bishop, who's going to go and preach and, 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 and face all kinds of pushback and resistance and persecution, or whether we are not any of those things, but we are just called to be faithful with what it is that we have received and maybe to serve the people who are close to me and to show love to people who are many oftentimes unlovable around me. Like that is also being a good soldier, right, to, 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 to war, not to simply give in to what maybe my flesh tells me, right? My flesh tells me, okay, you have every right to be angry, so go and take revenge on this person. Or, um, no, I will never forgive this person for what they've done to me. Or, you know, whatever, whatever the struggle is that we experience with the people who are around us and our close uh, family or friends or coworkers or whatever the case, this is also part of the struggle. So the struggle here is not necessarily something that's like a very grandiose at a, at, a, at a scale like of the apostles and the bishops and the... Um, but no, it, it's a daily struggle. It's a daily war, and it's an internal war. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Okay, so if somebody really believes that they are in a war, it's going to greatly alter their priorities, right? Um, you know, like if you, if you look at people who lived through like World War I and World War II, um, the, 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 the way they thought about life, like maybe they were just thankful every day that they're still alive. They're thankful that they still have a country. You know, they're thankful that the bombs haven't dropped on their own house, right? And maybe the things that they care about are, you know, not like, oh, I'm upset because, you know, I didn't get to see the movie that I wanted to see, or I'm upset because, you know, my food didn't taste good, or I'm upset because of trivial things, that maybe cause us to be upset sometimes because um, they are not distracted. That's why I'm saying no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Their whole focus on is how to survive because if, if they get distracted, then they will die, right? So because it's a war. And because they realize they're in a war and the stakes are so high, they're very highly motivated to do this. You know, like they're motivated. When, when a soldier is on the battlefield, it's not easy for him to fall asleep because he knows that if he falls asleep, he's likely to die. He's not struggling so much with, with that laziness as much as he's struggling just maybe with just the stress of staying alive in the midst of the war, right? So if, if we are in warfare and we are conscious of that warfare that we are in, right, then we will not be so attached to the world, right? We will not be so attached to the things here. Um, and we will see we seek to do what please him who enlisted him as a soldier so we see ourselves not as soldiers like mercenaries where we're like fighting for ourselves or fighting for money we are we are fighting for a cause right we are fighting for the the one who called us to the war right the one who redeemed us the one who prepared the path of salvation for us and so we it is it is a it is a war that is that is born out of love it is not born out of fear and it's not just born out of duty it's not born just because I'm told, like, this is the way I should live, but it's born out of love because we believe that the things that we struggle against in the flesh are the things that actually keep us from God. Like, 
if you love someone and there is something that is a barrier between you and them, you want to remove it. And if you have the ability to remove it, then you will. Because it's a separator. It's something that separates you. So so same thing here, like when we talk about like the struggle against the flesh and we talk about asceticism, sometimes people um, forget the reason that I fight this fight is not because I want to achieve perfection. It, that's almost kind of a, a vain reason to fight is because I want to look at myself and say, wow, look at me. I've attained such and such. I'm able to do such and such. It's, it's like a, a selfish, vainglorious reason for us to struggle is because we want to look at ourselves and we want to glory in ourselves. But the reason of the fight should be because these things that I'm fighting against are the things that are keeping me from my beloved, right? So I want to remove them. That is, that is my desire. My desire is to remove them, not for the sake of removing them, but for the sake of getting to the one, getting to the one who called me. So we want to please him and we want to draw close to him. And this is why we are soldiers for Christ. We are not just soldiers for ourselves. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, yes. All question. The the one who enlisted him here is is God, right? Is Christ? Is right? God? Yeah. Yes. I was just confused by the fact that it's not capitalized. Um. Well, I think because it's just it's making it like a metaphor. So it's saying like a metaphor would be like in the world, like a soldier in the world. But the analogy is that yes, this is God. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Okay, so again, it's another analogy of sports. Okay, so sports is a good analogy because it's something that people need to train for for a long time in order to succeed. And the one who is training also cannot be distracted with the affairs of life because they have to make a lot of sacrifices in order to win right maybe a lot of things they wish they could do that they can't do because they have to train and so they are making a lot of sacrifices so that they could compete okay and he says the one who is crowned okay he is not crowned as the as the winner unless he competes according to the rules so what are these rules that he's talking about what are the rules law the law which law of moses the law of moses so i mean definitely part of the rules is like the moral law right so the moral law is um what god has given us to be a safeguard for us so so that we are protected from falling away from him so that we are protected from harm we are protected from temptation right we are protected from being damaged so that's definitely part of the rules the rules are what is the moral law that we should follow okay good what else being attached to the sacraments okay so being filled with the grace of god which comes through the sacraments because simply our own effort is not uh, sufficient for us to be able to win like we were talking about this in the servants meeting about this uh, heresy called the Pelagian heresy where this man Pelagius believed that you could reach perfection without the grace of God simply by your own good works right so we don't believe that we believe that if you want to win you have to be supported by the grace of the Holy Spirit good so you can't rely on yourself only what else basically everything that God said is the way like the the way is Christ, right? So so the rules are you you enter through Christ. You can't enter in any other way, right? So you can't be like I'll live my life in this way, mm. but then I want s salvation. I want to win, right? I want to be a winner. So anything that Christ has said is the way. That's how you are gonna good. Like so, when Christ said, "I am the door," right? And if anyone wants to enter, he has to enter through me. So if somebody is trying to reach this apart from him if anyone is trying to win apart from him they they cannot right so the all the people that are claiming that they have some um answer to the human condition 
an answer to what really is fulfilling for the human being, what is the purpose of the human being apart from Christ, then this is also not according to the rules, right? So, so if you want to win, you have to play according to the the truth. Really, the rule the rules is the truth, right? What is the truth? Christ reveals to us the truth. We we live according to the truth, and then we can win. Okay. Good. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Okay, so for those people who are working and are competing and are training and are fighting, okay, what is it that they should expect? They should expect a reward, okay? And it says that this person who is working hard will be the first one to partake, right? The one who, who sows a lot will reap a lot, and the one who sows little will reap little. So you are going to sow from what, you're going to reap from what you sow. So if in your struggle, in your life, you, um, you make a lot of sacrifices, you, uh, you, you, you live a life of asceticism, you struggle to forgive your enemies, you, you, you struggle to pray, you struggle to read, you struggle to, to rise up to whatever it is that we are trying to do for our spiritual life, then we will reap the rewards from all of these things. We will reap the rewards from all of these things. But if we are lazy, if we do not put in the effort, if we are not diligent, then maybe we will find that by the end of our life, we will look back and we will be regretting um, all the time that we wasted because we will not have reaped all of the rewards that we want to reap. So I the, the farming example is saying, whatever effort you put in, you will reap. Okay, you will reap the same. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Okay? So, um, he's saying what? Those who harass and trouble St. Paul, they do so because they do not believe the message that he is preaching. Okay? So, so he's saying... What is the message? That Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead, okay, according to my gospel, for which I suffer, right? So this is the message that he is, that he is preaching to people. He's saying the message of the resurrection, the message of salvation, right? And, and so this message he is preaching, and this brings him trouble, right, which I suffer trouble, and even to be called an evildoer, that he is a blasphemer, right, because he is saying that this man is God. That this is what the Jews would say about him, and even to the point of chains, meaning meaning they would deliver him up to prison. Because again, we said he's writing this from prison. This is his last epistle that he wrote before his martyrdom. Um, even to the point of chains, where he is in prison. But the word of God is not chained. So even though he's saying, even though you imprison me and you put me in prison um, and you confine me, so that I cannot go and to preach, but the word of God is not chained. And actually, we see that the early church thrived during the times of martyrdom because because it was a testament to the truth of what was being taught that if someone is willing to die for this then it must have it must be true if someone's willing to die they believe it so much they are not gaining any kind of uh worldly or earthly benefit from it they believe completely that their their reward is going to come from god in the afterlife and they're so convinced of this right that they're willing even to sacrifice their life for it so the word of god is not chained even when those who preach it are chained and 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 again maybe when those who preach it are chained it actually has an even greater effect um, on the people therefore i endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation was in which is in christ jesus with eternal glory as we've mentioned many times about saint paul and his singular focus on his mission right he's saying i'm willing to endure everything for you like my life is not important um the fact that i'm in prison the fact that i didn't have an easy life the fact that every moment of my life has been committed somehow to the salvation of the world um i'm willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect and he's not he's not saying this pitying himself you know he's not saying like you know maybe shaking his fist at god and saying god why have you allowed all the suffering to come upon me even though i spend all of my time serving you and worshiping you and preaching your name why is it that you have not 
you know, made my life easier? Why are you allowing me to be in prison now? Why are, you know, am I always being threatened? Why do I have all these hardships? We never see this actually from St. Paul, but we see actually the opposite, that he takes all of the sufferings he experiences for the sake of his mission as being glory for him. Like, like, like I glory in the suffering, that this suffering is actually means that I'm suffering with Christ. And just as he suffered for me, so I also I suffer for him. It is an act of love. Maybe this is difficult for us. When, when we say, um, I am being punished for, be for doing good, maybe our reaction is resentment and bitterness toward God. Well, if I'm doing good, why are you letting me suffer? If I'm trying to do good, why are you making it so it's difficult for me? Right? But actually, this maybe is the, uh, the, the reward in, in the eyes of St. Paul, that this is a reward to, to be counted worthy to, to suffer with Christ. Um, and so he's enduring all things. He's willing to endure all things for the sake of the salvation of the people. This is his mission as an apostle, is the salvation of the people, and he places himself as nothing. He is nothing. He counts all things as rubbish, right? So he, did, he doesn't care about anything in life. His only thing he cares about is the salvation and, and the, the elect, all, the, all of the church. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Okay, so so here it's, he, he mentioned several things that are like cause and effect. This is again the reaping and sowing relationship. So he says, if we die with him, we shall also live with him. So how is it that we die with Christ? baptism so we die with him in baptism that's one kind of death right we die with him in baptism okay so so the spiritual struggle dying to the sins of the flesh putting to death the deeds of the body right this is a kind of dying in in second corinthians 4 uh, saint paul he says but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So this idea that we are always being delivered to death for Jesus' sake, again, the death starts with baptism, and the death continues because we are warring, we are fighting against the flesh. We are, we are, it is, it is, we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And this is a type of death where we die every day, right? And this is why we are, we are being called to live this kind of life. We are not called to simply just kind of like relax on cruise control, but we are called to continue to fight. So if we died with him, we shall also live with him, meaning if we are successful in dying with him, if we are, are, are active in this, right, in serving him and struggling, then also we will reap the reward of living with him, having eternal life. Okay? And then if we endure, we shall also reign, meaning the struggle is not just for a short period of time. The struggle is for a lifetime, meaning those who endure to the end will be saved. If, the, if we endure to the end, then we shall also reign with him. Reigning meaning as kings and queens, like as, as royalty. You know, and it says, um, uh, like Christ said, that, that to the apostles that they would sit on thrones in heaven, right, judging the world, right? So it's like, it's like we, are, we are receiving the treatment of royalty in, in the eternal life. We will reign with him, okay? If we deny him, he will also deny us, okay? So what is denying him? Well, in Luke 9, 26, it says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. So those who are ashamed of Christ, meaning they are rejecting Christ, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them, meaning he, they will be rejected. So those who reject Christ, Christ will reject. The rejection comes from us, like it starts from us. We, ha we actively reject, and so he rejects. 
this is so someone who is not going to enter the paradise is because they have rejected right and so we reject they reject but then he says what if we are faithless he remains faithful which which means he will always remain faithful to his promises so for instance one of his promises is that if somebody repents then he will be accepted right so this is faithfulness so so if if somebody turns away from god and decides to come back again then God is not going to say, oh, no, I changed my mind. I don't want you. No, he says, no, I am faithful to my promise. Whatever promise God makes, he is faithful to it because he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Okay, so the people that he is preaching to and the people that he is selecting to be his helpers, like you know, the presbyters, the, the priests who are going to help him. Because remember, he said to ordain people to help him in his ministry. So remind all of the people what is the focus of the ministry. The focus of the ministry is not to have arguments, right? Um, to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. To spend inordinate amounts of time um, focusing on nitpicky things that are actually not helping with people's salvation, but are causing more division, okay? Um, don't turn the faith into merely philosophy or eloquent words that will not benefit anyone, and do not fall into the trap of just getting caught up in endless arguments. Um, even St. Paul, when he was speaking to the Corinthians, he said, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So when he came, uh, St. Paul, his actions and his presence were very um, powerful, right? It, it wasn't just about the words that he said, or he says eloquent words. You know, you can get ChatGPT to give you a lot of eloquent words. But the idea is you're living according to what is it that you are preaching, right? You're living because the, the person hems themselves who is doing the preaching is the example. You know, we always say to like the Sunday school servants, like you are the lesson, you know, you are the lesson. You, 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 you make or break it by who you are and how you live. It's not what you say because words are cheap, right? Anyone can say words. It's do you live according to this? If you live according to it, then, then, then people will be attracted to your message because they see that though the message is difficult, it's something that you are, you are striving to live by. But if the message, if you're not living according to the message, then, then no, then your words have no value. Right, it's just like anyone talking, talking, talking. Does it's, it's it's not real, okay? So so don't focus on just endless arguments, okay? Focus on living according to the word of God. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, okay? So present yourself approved to God. Approved why? Because you are living according to the calling that you have been called, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, and he's not ashamed because he has been faithful. He has been faithful. He doesn't regret um, what he has done. He has used his time wisely, right? Divi rightly dividing the word of truth. Dividing the word of truth means he knows how to focus on the truth and to cut out the false or extraneous things that are unnecessary or unprofitable. You know, like get to the core of the thing. Let's get. Let's talk about the real thing. Um, not all of the the superficialities, not all the the fluff, right? That's on the outside. But let's cut to the to the heart of what it is that we need to do, and how is it that we need to live for um, our own salvation. But shun profane and idle babblings. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Okay. Profane and idle babblings. I again, profane, of course, meaning like cursing or something that is offensive, which maybe a lot of people can say, yes, they recognize that something that is profane is bad. And people will come and say, you know, like I was profane, and this is a confession, right? But idle babblings maybe is something harder for us to detect, okay? Because idle babblings is like we are, we are, we are wasting our time. Right, we are wasting our time. Maybe time that is supposed to be used for the edification of people, we are we are wasting it. Maybe if somebody is um, spending all of their time just trying to avoid being offensive to everyone, 
to an extreme, like to the extreme where they are just like, um, uh, you know, all they think about is, well, I can't say this and I can't say this and I can't say this, even though the things that they should be saying are true and they're things that people need to hear, right? But they're just worried about um, offending. So they, they, they dance around every issue, right? They don't get to the heart of anything. They avoid the topics that people really need to hear about because they're worried about it being offensive and they just focus on what? Oh, God loves you and, and God will bless you and all the things that we want to hear. But he doesn't focus on like, okay, what's my responsibility, right? Well, how is it that I'm living? Am I living a good life or not? Um, and so this is a kind of idle babbling, right? F to, no, to no effect, to no purpose. Or something like gossip, for instance, is idle babbling. It's just talking and, and, and it causes offense um, and causes harm to the hearers and is of no, um, of no benefit. Yes. So the verse before this one as well, the one with rightly um, dividing the word of truth, um, in the Arabic translation, it says, Mufassilan kanimat al which kind of also gives the, in my head when I read it, it also gives kind of a meaning that supports this verse, which is to say, don't take the words of God out of context or focus on one part apart from the rest of it so make sure that what you're divide dividing so b basically don't don't divide it unrighteously don't mm -hmm. take some parts of it focus on them and ignore the rest to to give a message that you want to give yeah very good yeah you know actually the word heresy what does the word heresy mean it means pick and choose right like that's what the word means heresy and because that's how heresies come about heresies usually are not something that has no basis in scripture right it's usually something that you can point to a verse and say look this supports what i'm saying right but only if you take that verse completely out of context without looking at any other verse that talks about that same concept right you take it out of context and then you can convince people of anything that you want and most um different christian denominations base their beliefs on a few verses that they point out and say, oh, look, we believe in this because of this, as opposed to taking it all together. So even though like people will look at like the Orthodox Church and they say, oh, you guys, you have holy tradition and you have all these other traditions and teachings and writings and things, not just the Bible. But actually, when you really look at it, we are the most biblical of any denomination because we take the entire Bible and we say we're going to read everything and we're going to base our understanding on the whole thing, not just on a specific verse here and there. Yeah. Thank you. So speaking about, like he's referring now to those who are, um, who, who are speaking in this idle, this profane and idle babblings that increase the more ungodliness, okay? So he says, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. So what is this? So uh, we had mentioned Gnosticism. Gnosticism was um, a, a religion, a faith that existed at the time, which was a deviation um, and uh, from, from the Christian faith. And they believed that um, the material... Uh, the material things were evil, like the flesh is evil, like the body, the physical body is evil, all the physical world is evil, um, and they focused only on the spiritual. So the concept, the idea that there will be a resurrection of the body, or, or, or like like the, the, the bodily resurrection as Christ was resurrected, they considered this to be uh, wrong, okay? So they, they believe that the, the resurrection, which they consider it to be only a spiritual resurrection, has al already happened. And there will be no more resurrection of the body, okay? Um, and so regarding this, this is what St. Augustine says. He says, many deny the resurrection of the body. As they affirm that the resurrection has already occurred through faith, they say that it has occurred in a way that they do not expect it to happen later on. Indeed, they blame those who expect the resurrection of the body since the resurrection, which has been promised us, has been realized in the mind only and through faith. So they're saying, the, the resurrection is only the spiritual resurrection, like the kind of resurrection we would get in baptism, which is a spiritual resurrection, is the only resurrection. But there will be no uh, resurrection of the body, 
that that happens later on. And so he's calling this concept uh, cancer, like this this message is like cancer, and he's calling out these two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who were originally believers but strayed and started to preach this message that the resurrection has already passed and thereby causing confusion and some people to leave the church and adopt this like Gnostic belief. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Okay, so he starts by saying, nevertheless, so despite the fact that we have people who have wrong faith and they are teaching the wrong thing and they believe that the resurrection has already passed, the solid foundation of God stands, right? Meaning, meaning those people who proclaim the true faith, like the true faith still exists. Nothing has overthrown the church. The, the true faith still exists and stands. And God knows who are his. Meaning he, 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 he examines the hearts. He knows who are his and who is not. Okay? And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So the people who want to be Christ's, the people who want to be his, they live a life that is pleasing to him. And now again, this doesn't mean that we don't fall right in sin, but that we are actively repenting. We are living a life of repentance. But he says what? In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver. So imagine like you have a house, there are some very fancy vessels, containers, jars, pots, pottery, all kinds of things, right? There's some of the vessels of gold and silver, very nice, okay? But there are also some of wood and clay. So what house is he speaking? So even in the church, right like even in the church you have some people who are like the gold and silver like they're the ones who um are are, are living the life of, of of faith they're the ones that are doing everything right and they are participating in all the sacraments and they're confessing and they're serving and they're like they're doing everything they can to be purified and sanctified and admitting their faults and all of that but in the same house you also have vessels of dishonor okay um that that maybe are not doing these things, okay? And, and, and the idea that you have gold, silver, wood, clay, like, like there's different levels. Like not everybody is gold. Not everybody is silver, right? But maybe even those of wood and clay, okay, there could be some that are like lesser, but maybe still trying. But there are some vessels of honor and some for dishonor. There are some things that bring honor to God, and there are some things that bring dishonor to him right and all of them are together in the house so he's saying if anyone cleanses himself from the latter okay um, from from sin and iniquity then he will be a vessel for honor sanctified and useful for the master prepared for every good work and what's interesting is that the concept of the vessel is something that's empty that's ready to be filled right that's what a vessel is like an empty vessel it's like a container right so the container is ready to be filled so he says, what I am ready, like what we are doing is like preparing ourselves. We are preparing ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And some have greater capacity to be filled than others. Some have greater capacity for God to use them than, uh, than, uh, than others. Because in the end, by being a vessel, we are saying what? We want to be sanctified and useful for the master prepared for every good work. So he is the one who chooses how to use us. He's the one who directs us. He's the one who calls us. He's the one who who leads us in a certain path of our life according to his will, and so we leave it up to him. And we say, God, according to your will and not according to my will. This is what we are called for, right? To be vessels, to be ready to be useful to him. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Okay, so he's speaking now, to St. Timothy, okay? Um, and he's saying, flee youthful lusts, flee all of the, the negative things, the negative attachments, the negative desires, the things that can derail your ministry, okay? But pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So he's saying, run away from the bad and, 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 and embrace the good. 
And a lot of times, sometimes, like, people, when they are trying to struggle against sin, they focus on avoiding the bad, but they don't focus on embracing the good. And you have to have both. Like, if you say, okay, like, they have a, there's a bad habit that I'm doing, and I want to stop it. So, okay, so I'm trying my best to identify when I'm doing it, um, where I'm doing it, maybe who I'm with when it's happening, how do I stop it, and I put effort into trying to figure out how to stop it. And that's good. But if you want to be successful, not only are you going to try to avoid that, but you're going to fill your mind and fill your time with other things. Or, like, let's say someone who is trying to um, avoid uh, being on social media as often as they are or uh, avoid watching, like, movies and videos and stuff as much as they do. Well, how much do you watch? Well, like, uh, eight hours a day. So eight hours a day. Okay, so you're eight hours a day on social media or watching movies and this. Okay, are you I'm going to stop it. Okay, you're going to stop. What are you going to spend the eight hours doing? Because you can't just, if you have eight hours of your time, that's being used to do something. And then you're going to say, well, I'm going to stop doing this thing. Well, you have to fill up the time with something else because it's just going to be a vacuum. And that vacuum is going to suck something else into it, right? So, like, pray more, read more, serve more, go out more, do work out more, do something positive more, right? Fill up the time um, and draw closer to God more, right? Um, don't just flee what is evil, but embrace, um, embrace what is good. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been, captive, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So first he says don't, got, don't get caught up in, in foolish arguments that just cause division and strife. Because again, someone in a position like a bishop, for instance, um, many people come to him uh, with complaints. Many people come to him saying, why are we doing this or why are we not doing this? Uh, this person is upset with me about this. And there's all kinds of complaints all the time, like a negative and bad news all the time. It says avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Don't get yourself caught up in the smallest disputes between people or that generate strife because you will find yourself doing nothing but simply trying to mediate these matters or, or get sucked into these arguments, okay? And 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 a, a person who is a servant of the Lord must not be quarreling, meaning they shouldn't be quick to anger. They should be gentle and patient and peaceful, um, not easily uh, getting, getting upset or losing their temper, um, because of these quarrels that happen, all these conflicts that happen, because there will always be such, okay? But be gentle to all, able to teach. Be gentle with everybody, be able to teach them, because you aren't, you're not going to be able to teach anybody when you're angry with them, right? Like a person who's angry is not going to be able to teach. So if you want to be able to teach, you have to be gentle and you have to be patient, and in humility correcting those who are in opposition. So even someone of the rank of a bishop, right, who has authority, when he wants to correct someone, it says what? Correct him in humility. In humility. Not in authority. And even though he has the authority, and even we see St. Paul whenever he writes in his letters and addressing the church, right? He, he tries his best to avoid using the apostolic authority in a kind of like a very direct, forceful way, right? He, he tries to correct people in humility. He starts by complimenting them and focusing on the things that are positive that they have done and 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 trying to appeal to their their understanding and saying you know the truth and you and I know that you're better than this and I know this and this right so he's he, he he's not just coming in and saying you know this is wrong you have to stop now it doesn't mean that there aren't times where it's called for because there are times where it is called for but that should be like a last resort right be able to teach patient and humility correcting those who are in opposition if God perhaps will grant them repentance, and this is in the end, what is the goal of correction? Sometimes we take correction to be like, it's me versus you. I'm trying to win an argument against you. I'm trying to prove that my point is right against you. I'm offended because you did the wrong thing, and so I'm like um, telling you, no, you have to do it the way that I'm saying or the right way is what I'm saying. And so it becomes more of like a personal thing, right? The, the, here he's saying, when you are correcting someone, what is the goal? The goal is that they come to repentance, right? Not that I win an argument. 
Not that in the end they recognize that I was right all along and that they need to follow me or that I'm good and they're bad. No, so that they can come to repentance. So that they may know the truth, right? So that they may know the truth. Again, this is for their salvation. They may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Maybe a person is under the snare of the devil because they're living a life where um, they are like blinded to the negative effect that their lifestyle choices have on them. They're, they're, they're blind to the darkness that they're in. They're blind to the kind of suffering that they're experiencing because of their own bad choices that, they can, that ma they've made and continue to make. So we want them to come to their senses to realize, hey, the way that I'm living is actually damaging to me. The thoughts that I have are wrong. They're actually backwards. They're not according to the truth. And all of this darkness is, of course, the snare of the devil because he wants us to be in darkness. Having been taken captive by him to do his will, we want to move them from, from his camp to God's camp so that they pursue the truth. N again, not seeking the destruction of the opposition, but seeking um, their salvation and to do it with gentleness and patience. I have a question. Yes. Where it says, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, why is it if? Doesn't God always want to give us repentance, grant us repentance? It seems like it's dependent on God granting it and not us denying or rejecting it. I think that's the, the way it's worded is, yeah, maybe it can, it can have that uh, like understanding. But I don't think that's what he's, it's saying. It's saying if God will w work in their heart to, to bring them to the point of repentance. So it's like, you know, how do we know when a person um, is, like, like let's say Pharaoh, for instance, when it says that God hardened his heart. So, of course, we don't understand that God is the one actually hardening the heart, but that he rejected the, the, the work of grace, right? And so his heart is hardened, okay? How do we, how do, how, at what point does God, like, like, intervene in somebody's life and soften their heart? Right, so that they would come to repentance versus uh, not, like versus being like, okay, you mean this is what you chose? Like we see examples of people who, like, like let's say Saint Paul, that's a good example as Saul, right? So he was living a life of like a destructive life. He was killing Christians. He was doing all this, right? But then the Lord appeared to him in such uh, an amazing, miraculous way that couldn't be denied, which is of course in, in a miracle, right? And hearing a voice and seeing a light, so. That was part of the repentance of St. Paul, and that was something that God granted him to have such an experience. But why did God allow him to have that experience and not some other random person, right, who was also living in a life of sin? He saw that St. Paul was ready and judged him worthy of that experience for whatever reasons that God only knows. So it's like saying there are some people who are living in darkness because they don't know better, Right, and maybe God is wanting to pluck them out of that and bring them to something better, like Cornelius, for instance. Like he wasn't he wasn't a believer, but he was doing according to his own understanding, and he was giving to, he was praying, he was giving alms, he was doing good to people, and so God f deemed him to be worthy to promote him, like say to the next thing. Whereas there are other people who are willfully disobedient. Maybe even the things that they know to do good, they do not do. So when it says, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, it's saying that God will move in their heart so that they would come to repentance. It reminds me also of that Romans verse where he says that they gave into each other these sinful things and he gave them a debased mind mm -hmm. that they will continue. Yes, exactly the same. Okay. Uh, looking at Katana, um and St. Augustine says, let Pelagius confess that pardon is granted to the repentant according to the grace and mercy of God, not according to his merits. It is that very repentance which the apostle called the gift of God when he said of certain ones, let God perhaps may grant them repentance. Yeah. It's the idea that it's his. Yeah, very good. It doesn't sit well because then Pharaoh was like killed. Pharaoh? Right, Pharaoh and his chariots and his armies, right? And so when you say God allows repentance and he's worthy of, right, then how does that play into their salvation and their what did What did God do to get Pharaoh's attention? I mean, ten plagues. Ten plagues. That's probably more than most people, right? So, so 
even even for that example, mm-hmm. okay, it's not like it's not like God just you know didn't. It's not like God didn't give him the opportunity. And you know, we talk about the plagues. The plagues were attacking the gods of Egypt, right? So, for instance, when the Egyptians they believe in the god of the sun, right? So God brought what darkness, and He said, "Look, I'm stronger than the sun. I'm stronger than your god of the sun." Or they believed in the Nile God. He says, you know what, I'm going to turn the Nile into blood. So in every, every God that the Egyptians had, it's like God was demonstrating that he was more powerful than them so that the Egyptians themselves, including Pharaoh, would believe. Right. So even the plagues, they were not arbitrary punishments. First of all, there were 10 of them. Right? He could have just done one and been like, okay, that's it. No, he did 10. And, and, and they got progressively worse and worse, and they were specifically attacking the faith of the Egyptians so they would understand that he is the true God and not the, what they believed in. So he gave them all the, um, the opportunity. But in the end, Pharaoh is the one who hardened his heart. There is one time where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. There's another time where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But again, we, we mean that, we understand that to mean that he did not give him, he, he did not give him the grace to soften his heart actively. Like he didn't soften Pharaoh's heart. But Pharaoh's heart was already hard. And if Pharaoh had maybe like taken some steps of repentance or 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 you know started to question or consider, maybe, yeah, maybe maybe God could have convinced him in some other way. But but he didn't. Pharaoh was completely stubborn from the beginning. He didn't move at all. And even after ten times, it still wasn't enough. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So that's an example of God did not grant repentance, meaning he did not. He did not grant him the grace, which is a cooperation with our own effort. You know, I always talk about how we are like fellow workers with God. So, so even my own repentance, it's a cooperation. Because part of it is the grace of the Holy Spirit working in me to convict me of sin. But part of it is also myself. Like, I, I acknowledge that what I'm doing is wrong. So there is this, both are working together. So if God sends his grace... Like God is sending the ten plagues to like capture Pharaoh's attention, but Pharaoh is not responding. He's not responding. He's not responding. And so in the end, the result was is he didn't change. You know, um, another example is King David, right? After all the sins that he had committed with Bathsheba, okay, and all of that, and killing her husband, and all of that, okay. So he hadn't yet really sat down and thought about what it is that he had done and come to the conclusion that he, wha- he he had sinned and that he needs to repent. Okay? But what is it that God did? Well, God sent Nathan the prophet, and he said, go to David and tell him the story about this man and this, this sheep and all of that, um, so that so that he will repent. So that was God's active work, is through Nathan the prophet, to convict David of the sin. But the moment that David heard that story, and the man, and he told him, you are the man, right? David repented, right? So, it is again it's a cooperation i cannot say that it's like only one or only the other god is not going to send his grace to override our will if i'm not willing to receive it or accept it but my will alone without the grace of god maybe also is insufficient for me to come to repentance so god is calling everyone to repentance god even in non-believers right like how is it that someone who is a non-believer comes even to be a believer is it only because of their work alone no, we believe that they're being called by God. They're being called by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working in them, even though they are not believers, right? But even the ones that may never become believers were called as y- well. Yes. Everyone is called, mm-hmm. but not everyone answers the call. Because I'm like thinking about all the people in the desert that the Israelites fought against, right? Because mm-hmm. they were the enemies of the Lord, right? We only hear of one or two or three that may have whose heart was turned toward the Lord, right? But all of those people, when you say he, like he can grant repentance or he grants grace, was we can assume that that grace is allowed if there is also on their end some sort of response or if he sees a response or a potential response. Sure. Um, I mean, even all of the people that, the, all the, the Gentile nations that lived around Israel, uh, Israel had a reputation. And they said, oh, these are the people whom their God um, brought them out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea and is a powerful God. Like all the nations around Israel knew this. So 
they understood that the God of Israel was special, right? But that didn't cause them to then go to the next says, okay, now I'm going to believe in the God of Israel. Like it's an iterative thing and not everyone gets there. Like Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, when he saw that Daniel was saved from the lion's den, he was like moved. You know, it's like, how is this even possible? And so he wrote a letter to his entire kingdom saying everyone should worship the God of Daniel, right? But that didn't make him to stop worshiping other gods. Like he didn't, he, he, he took a step forward because he saw something which was the work of grace and he responded to the work of grace, okay? But it doesn't mean that he went all the way. So different people will respond in different ways. Like when, whenever there is a miracle, like, okay, like the miracle that happened in Egypt in the 60s uh, for the, the Zaytun church where St. Mary appeared for a period of two years on top of the church, right? Some people looked at that and they're like, okay, I believe. Some people looked at it and says, no, I don't believe or it's a fake or a hoax or whatever it is, right? So, so what was the work of God? Well, the work of God was to do a miracle that was became visible to, to thousands and thousands of people and became well-known worldwide. Like that was a work of grace, okay? But who responded to that grace? The, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, you know, after the rich man goes to Hades and he's speaking to Abraham and he says, please send someone back from the dead to go to my family so that they would not come to the place where I am. And Abraham says, they have the law and the prophets. Even if someone were to rise from the dead, they would not believe. So for some people, maybe yes, if I see someone rise from the dead, I would believe. For other people, even that would not be enough. Any other questions? Okay, you can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing in everything that we do. And we ask that you give us the spirit of service and sacrifice as you gave to your apostles and to the early church as St. Paul and St. Timothy had. Help us, O Lord, not to be afraid of persecution or struggles that we might face in the service or might face, O Lord, in being believers and following you in the, in the middle of this perverse generation that we live. Teach us, O God, how to be faithful both in our spiritual lives, in our internal life, in our thoughts, in our minds, with our families, with our friends, but also with everyone around us that we meet. Help us to be good example, O Lord, not only in word, but also in deed. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints here, as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God, the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.